Welcome to the Band of Brothers podcast. The Band of Brothers is the men's ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. The we are on right now is winning at work and home. We are being led by Pastor Greg Mott, Jason Swigert, Eric Reed, Ben Pritchett, and several other ministers from the church. We're glad you're joining us, and we hope you have a blessed day. Regardless of where you're from, regardless of whether or not you're married, single, have kids, don't have kids, all of that, I promise you that at some point in time in the next year, it's going to be a subject of conversation around a table, whether it's at an apartment or at your house or among your friends or coworkers. Um, we are in an interesting economic time, there's no doubt about it. Uh, when the experts are perplexed and scratching their heads and fumbling around, uh, rest assured that a guy like me is uh, is dumbfounded in some ways, and yet God has not left us clueless about money. He's given us lots of wisdom about money. If our country would actually follow some of that, I don't think we would even be in the predicament we're in, but uh, we are where we are. God transcends our economic structure, and I want to talk today about the area of, of money. Um, got a clip from a movie. Uh, a slightly edited clip, so if you see the guy jump around, it's because he's dropping uh, F-bombs and stuff like that. So uh, the movie's Jerry Maguire. A lot of you are familiar with it. Uh, I think it captures, in some ways, it captures a little bit of, of how money can actually affect our lives. Right. The issue of money is one that affects all of us. And we might not be sports agents and professional athletes in here, although some of you may be and I don't know it. But uh, it's for sure that it surfaces in our lives. And so here's what all the fuss is about, maybe not $20, but but this. You know, it's it's pretty benign. It's it's paper, it's an exchange that we make in our society. I, I say that it's neutral. And yet somehow when it gets into our hands, sometimes it takes a hold of us more than us taking a hold of it. And regardless of what our job is, regardless of our status of life, how we manage money will determine a whole lot about our life. And we have seen in our society today that when it's managed well, it's a blessing. That it's a blessing that's used to propel good in our society and good around the world. It provides for the real needs of real people, right? But we also know that when it runs wild and when it's not managed well and when a thing called greed takes over that it destroys the very thing it's a neutral deal and we're going to look today at some principles that i believe if if we as a country got into i'm talking about from the top down and from the bottom up if we all got into the principles that we're going to see today that we would avoid a lot of heartache and we would avoid a lot of what we've been witnessing around us. And that's not what inspires me to teach this at all. Uh, what inspires me to teach this was the fact that I desired my wife to be able to stay at home, and yet I was only making about $30,000 a year, and we had two kids. And there are only a few options out there for us, and we're living in Houston, Texas. And what inspired me was that I had a dad that showed me that, that it's not always earning more money. Sometimes it's actually learning how to handle the money that you've been blessed with already. And so I want to share some of that. I'll share some of our story with you and the conflicts we had the first year and a half of marriage. And, uh, and I want us to roll forward in here. I want to give you three big picture perspectives. And, and, and to begin with, money promises us happiness, but the facts say otherwise. And I think this is, this is bedrock foundational stuff here. If you're in the newlywed class that I teach, I deconstructed happiness uh, maybe a month ago. We were talking about contentment. And the root word of happiness is hap, which means chance. It's chance. That's the root word of happiness. Just look it up in the Oxford you know, Annotated Edition. It's there. If we are seeking anything like that to generate happiness, it is happen circumstance if it happens. So we've got to find something that goes beyond that. Money will never deliver that, and I think we could all agree upon that. In fact, Louis Armstrong, the great jazz musician, he said, money can't buy happiness, but it sure does quiet your nerves. And I, I agree with him. When it's done right, it brings a little peace into life, yes, but it does not buy happiness. 
And so the studies that have been done over the last 20 years, it's indicated the last 20 years is that there is a large correlation to having your basic fundamental needs met in happiness. How many of y'all have your basic fundamental needs met? Raise your hand. Happiness and money are decoupled beyond that. What's actually been discovered is that the more people have, what tends to happen is they buy into the illusion that stuff identifies you at your core and that the things you have will bring value, meaning, and purpose into life. And it takes your eyes off of the biblical principle that how you treat people and how you treat God, loving God and loving each other are the two biggest indicators of whether or not you will have joy in this life, period. We're going to talk about the role that giving has in this and the role that serving has in this. But I just want to say on the very front side that I think Louis Armstrong was absolutely right. It doesn't buy you happiness. It can bring some peace into your life. Uh, What couples argue the most about and the longest about is money. That is a fact. There was a study done at the University of Denver by couples. They were couples that were pre-marriage couples. In other words, they were dating, engaged, moving toward marriage, as well as couples that had been married 15 and 20 years. They were called long-term married couples. And it was a self-evaluation of what do you identify as the thing that you, in a sense, argue or disagree with the most in your marriage? What's brought the most conflict into your marriage? Number one answer that was reported. Now, this is self-reporting, so obviously they can be lying. They can be deceptive. Polls are just that. They're just polls. But I think typically people are honest on things like this, and it was money. We're going to look at some of the reasons I think that is, but, but if you imagine, think about your own marriage if you're married. If you're not, then think about you know, a girlfriend that you've had before or someone that you've dated, and think about how differently you probably perceive money and handle money. And marriage, it brings that into real close proximity. And you bring two radically different things into close proximity that has quite a bit of pull in our society because from my earliest recollection, watching Saturday morning TV, the identity that I was hearing day in and day out was this, that I am a consumer. Now, my mom didn't say that. My dad didn't say that. But everything in our society around me told me that I'm a consumer. I have instant gratification if I have the money to get it. I can get whatever I want, the little cereal that has the cool marshmallows, the tricks or whatever, you know. And, and as a kid, I'd go through the store, and I'd be sitting there telling my mom, I want this, and I want that. And I remember Christmas time, JCPenney catalog and service merchandise catalog, and I'd go through and I'd circle the things that I'd want, and I'd dog ear, and there's like, you know, $12,000 of stuff I wanted. Well, that's a pretty typical American kid, I believe, that early on we're rooted and grounded in consumerism. Now, I'm not bashing a free market. I'm not bashing buying things that we need. But you bring two people with that orientation into a marriage, and you're going to have some sparks that fly. And today I'm going to give you some strategies on trying to get on the same page uh, with your wife so that you all hopefully will experience the peace and the joy that God intends for us to have. I think the reason that uh, we do argue a lot about it is that we don't get a lot of instruction from our home of origin. I mean, outside of an allowance, I mean, how many of y'all really got financial personal finances 101 from your family. And if you're blessed, we've had a couple of hands go up, but if you're like me, I was very blessed in one thing. My dad had gone through the depression. He didn't have a mom and a dad. He was raised by an aunt in a small town in Tennessee, Etowah, Tennessee, population like negative 50 probably by now. It's a small town that's not doing really well, especially now, like one one stoplight, you know, that, that type of town. And they were proud when they got it. But he taught me the danger of debt. My dad taught me that. He was ruthless on debt. He bought cars with cash. He paid for everything with cash. And that's how he did it. And he drove. He could have driven nice cars, but he drove used cars with lots of miles on them that weren't impressive. That, to be honest, I went to a private school. I was an all-boys school. Um, I had a friend that drove a Ferrari 308, a friend that drove a 911. I drove an old, beat-up Ford Tempo. Okay, it sounds like a laxative. That's not an exciting car, a, a Tempo. It keeps you regular, you know? And, and so in that, though, I was blessed by my dad that at least he challenged the, the society around me to say, you don't have to gratify every desire you have. And he also gave me the value of hard work. He said, if you want something, I'll pay half if you pay half. Well, that got me out at age 10 mowing grass in my neighborhood and painting houses. 
because I wanted this Ruger 1022. It was a little gun. I wanted it. It's $185. So I had to earn 90 you know, whatever dollars it is. And so I set out to get that. And I remember when I got it, I, I then went to my dad. Here's the service merchandise catalog. There's the gun. Here's the money. Can we go and get it today? And so it went like that. Um, I feel blessed in those areas. As far as budgeting, uh, investments, and all of that, dude, I am lost as they come in those areas. And I've had to learn that more the hard way than the easy way. A second area is... A uh, few of us were taught at home. Few of us were taught money management practices in school. If you have an MBA, you learned a ton about finances and macroeconomics and macroeconomics and spreadsheets and everything else, but you probably did not get a ton of help in the area of personal finance. And maybe that's changed since when I was in school, but I remember some of the guys that were the biggest mess with credit card and ATM cards at our school were the business majors. I mean, it was, they loved cash. That's what sort of drove them into what they were doing. They loved to make money and spend it. They had no idea of containing it, controlling it, budgeting it, and focusing it on a reason or a purpose or a goal. And so I don't think we get that in school. And therefore, most couples address their financial issues through a painful trial and error process. And I would just say, instead of a trial and error process, if we had some well-researched, high-impact strategies and practices in the realm of economics, personally, it would save a ton of heartache. It would be a great thing. It would help eliminate the number one thing couples are fussing and fighting about across our country, and that is finances. And so, want us to go to number two reason? We also have differing financial personalities. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the four personalities. There's Choleric, sanguine, phlegmatic, and what was the other one? Melancholic, right? And hopefully you did the live to die exercise and you sat down with your wife or your girlfriend or a close friend and you figured out, you know, this is who I am and, and this is sort of how you're wired. Well, well, financially, there are also different personalities. I'm going to give you two of them. And the, uh, the first one's the number conscious personality. This is typically a person that absolutely has a little bit of anxiety all the time dealing with finances. They're the ones that are going to pay the bills. They use the memo section on a check. They know how to budget their checkbook. They like Quicken and money, you know, those magazines and those software products. That's them. They're into that. Okay, the other side of it is the carefree personality. For these people, they're sort of everything's going to work out in the end. You don't really need to set a budget or anything. It's all fine and good. Their idea of saving money is buying a lot of stuff on sale. Um, as, <laughs> it doesn't work that way, you know, but that's sort of how they see it. Um, you know, bud, uh, balancing a checkbook for them is not always a dollar into a penny thing. It's sort of an about thing. Uh, the first year of my marriage with Stacy, uh, Stacy, believe it or not, is pretty carefree financially. Now, she is a saver. She's, when she came to Christ in college, God really showed her the sort of the flaw of trying to buy your contentment and buy your happiness uh, through, you know, fashions and all those types of things. Not that she doesn't dress nicely. She does, but she doesn't orbit around that. A lot of ladies I know orbit around it. I mean, from the magazines to the catalogs to, you know, they're always spending lots of money on their clothes and lots of money on other things. My wife, Praise God, and I mean that, is a lady that is contented generally in her heart, first and foremost, with Christ. Um, but in this idea of the, of the carefree and the number conscious, I would sit here, and ever since Quicken came out, I used it. And so I had all my Quicken data, and I was, you know, balancing everything out. And then all of a sudden, I'd be like, honey, there, there, there's like four checks missing, and there's, there's nothing written down. What, what, where did that go? And she'd be like, uh, well, you know, that one's this, and well, how much was it? Well, it's like uh, about 20. About 20, does that mean 19.99 or 20 even or 20.01 or 21.17? And so we, we started getting into conflicts, and then I'd finally get the canceled check through. So I'd enter the data, but there'd be nothing in the memo section. And so if you know anything about Quicken, you have categories for your budget. You have no idea where to put that in the budget now. And so every time she wrote a check, and we wrote lots of checks the first year of marriage, we got into an argument. I got mad at her because I couldn't do it the way I wanted to do it because she was being carefree and I was being number conscious. 
hopefully, <clears throat> if you're like most people, opposites attract in this area. Now, from here on out, if you're two number-conscious people, and I know there are a couple of people that married a number-conscious person, and I know that they are pretty retentive on that, Lang Motes, that, that you probably could teach this far better than me, and you could probably leave right now, and you're okay. But if you're two sort of the carefree personality people, and you're married, or you're dating, or you're wanting to be married, dude, you need this, and you need about a dozen other things, like Financial Peace University, reading Larry Burkett's book on debt-free living. I recommend that to anybody that has trouble containing their spending. I read it back in like 1986 or 87, and it's been a huge blessing for me. It's, it's just a very biblical view of stuff, and it's called debt-free living. Um, anyhow, those personalities intersect, <clears throat> and, and because of all of this, that we have different personalities, we don't have good information on it, we have to, I believe, go to the Bible because the Bible speaks long and loud on money and it speaks with a wisdom that truly works. There are over 2,300 passages of Scripture that deal with money. That's more than every other topic except for God's character himself. He knew that it was a big issue in life. He knew that where our treasure was, where would our heart be? Right there with it. He knew that if you can control the, the beast within of greed that that's a spiritual discipline, and he knew it. He even gave us a pathway to set ourselves free from that. For most of us couples today, we walk around a little bit in a fog, and part of the fog is this, that you don't know what your wife is spending money on, and she doesn't know what you're spending money on, and there's a little distrust that can be in there unless you have established a good, solid bank account, and you've already got things put in place, which probably indicates you've already learned how to budget. But if you're like a lot of people in our country right now, not knowing and not trusting, conflict is going to come up over and over and over. And so I want to give some high-yield money practices from Scripture for couples. The first one is face the facts. And in Ephesians 4, it says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another. Now, granted, the context of this isn't on finances, but if you take this principle of speaking the truth to each other and you apply it into a marital relationship and finances, what that means is you should actually know what's going on financially from both perspectives, from both ends. That this idea of his money, her money, totally separate, not ever brought together, it's recommended by some financial planners especially in a society where there's a lot of divorce, but I don't, I don't roll the dice on the divorce thing. We've brought it all together, my wife and I. It's, it's, it's God's money. We steward it as a couple. We talk about it as a couple. We make our plans as a couple. And yes, we'll talk about what a personal allowance is within that, so there is a sense of she has some money she spends. I don't worry about it. And I have some money that I can spend, and she doesn't worry about that. But we've agreed upon those things. I would just tell you that the, by and large, couples that have done the split money deal, <clears throat> they've got one foot, they're hedging a bet that this thing isn't going to work. And a lot of times they've come from broken homes, or they've, one of them has come from a broken home, and they've seen what it looks like when a divorce happens, and it's not pretty. It's always ugly. No one wins. And they've hedged their bets, and they go ahead and say, well, let's go ahead and let's leave our accounts separate. I would encourage you, build intimacy and trust with your spouse Take a step of faith. Take a step of faith and lead that together. To say, you know what? We're supposed to be one in the eyes of God. We're going to roll the dice on this and say, God, you're bigger. We will make it. We're committed to the marriage, and we don't hedge our bets. We're not hedging our bets against this marriage. We're, taking, we're going all in on our marriage. I know that flies against what some financial planners will tell you, but, but I'm encouraging you as a marriage minister, that's, that's it. Um, you got to know what you really spend. Uh, my wife and I are having to do this right now because I started looking at our grocery store expenses coming through. We have four kids now, you know? And I've noticed that every all those expenses are getting a lot higher, a lot higher than what I remember them supposed to be, you know? And, and so we're going through that arduous, tedious, old-fashioned process that, that we, we call tracking, <laughs> And we've got a little notebook, and my wife is writing dollars and cents. She goes to Kroger, she goes to HEB, or I'm coming home from work, and I call her, is there anything I need from the grocery store? She tells me, I swing into the Kroger on Westview, pick up some items, take the receipt, go home, put that in. 
Why are we doing this? Well, we have to face the facts of where our money's going and assess where we're at and get a clear picture of where we're at before we can actually create a budget to help remedy and to direct us into some very specific areas that I think we need to be shaped up in. And so although this stuff isn't fun, it's very, very important. After you do that, you need to decide together. And I would say the two key words up here, together is, is one, and I'd circle that word. Decide together as a couple where you want to spend your money and then circle that before you spend it. Before you spend it. In Amos, it says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no. Financially, we've got lots of couples trying to walk together financially, and they do not agree. There are husbands I've spoken with that their chief conflict is that they tithe and their wife doesn't want them to tithe. Well, we say, oh, man, you know, he's leading his home. and it, We need to be praying and bringing some sense of unity within our home, and that's part of leadership. <clears throat> Leaders that are good, build they build coalition, right? They gather people together. They build consensus. They make their case. Some of the arguments against uh, President Bush on how has he done as a president, one of the, the knocks I think that could be leveled against him has been He's done a poor job of communicating consistently with the American people and building a consensus among the people, making a case for the policies that we have. And I'm not saying that as a partisan one way or the other, but I'm just saying that realistically, that as a man, a leader of your home, you need to build consensus with your wife in this area of finances. And if you don't, you're going to have that ongoing battle, that ongoing struggle. By, by figuring it out before you spend it, I'll just tell you this, it is far better to have one big argument a year over a budget than 365 little arguments every day of your life on every spent expense that you make, and all of a sudden you see your wife wearing a shirt, and you're like, how much did that cost? Where did you, when did you buy that? When you get into that, I'm just telling you, when you get into that spirit in a marriage, intimacy, I tell you, if it's cold out there, it will be frigid in the bedroom. I said that last week, and I mean that still. It will be cold. You're adversarial. You're not allies anymore. You don't have trust. I'm talking about building trust, which will build intimacy, which will deliver to you the marriage that you desire that God has for you. So in this area, you need to gain agreement. So look at the facts and budget out of that reality. So you're going to begin there. Number two, most couples will need some outside help getting started with a budget. That means they go into a financial planner. Well, what if it cost me a hundred bucks? A hundred bucks well spent. Most financial planners won't charge you much, if anything, because they ultimately would love to manage your money for you, and that is where their reward will come. So they will help you assess where you are financially, where you need to be as far as insurance goes, as far as savings goes, as far as college education funds go. You can take their advice or you can leave their advice. But I really believe most of us, if you don't have a financially savvy friend, I happen to be blessed with a couple of them that are financially savvy. And I called one of them last night, or not last night, actually yesterday, I was waiting for a friend at lunch. And then I called him because I had some time to kill. And I said, hey, I disagree with some of this material. And I sort of shared what I disagree with. He said, I think you're spot on. He said, I think that's a fair assessment. So if you say that, you're not out as, you know, as a financial planner that does this for a living. I don't think you're being wrong in what you're saying. And so some of what I want to say will disagree a little bit. Um, once you have a budget, <clears throat> number three, never spend money that has not been pre-approved. This is where impulse control comes in. Because the newest, fastest, greatest technology gadget will arrive Probably every month for the next 12 months, for the next 12 months, for the next 12 months. And every car, the, the greatest, fastest car you had last year, there's going to be one that has more horsepower this year. And if you're into gadgets or you're into gear or you're into cars or you're into clothes or whatever it is, your desire is going to be, I don't need to delay that. I can get that right now. I've got a credit card in my pocket or we've got a little bit of extra money already so I can just spend that and use that. Two things are going to happen. Number one is you're going to actually put yourself into a risky financial situation. 
You don't know what tomorrow holds. Scripture tells us that over and over and over. It's presumptuous of us to say, well, we've got money in the bank right now, so I can just blow it on this. We don't know. A lot of us have just found that out in a painful reminder just real recently. You know, my wife and I, we've lost a lot of not our retirement. Yes, that got done, but actually liquid asset stuff, you know, stocks and things that we had invested in that we were going to use for other things that we've experienced a great we haven't locked in our loss yet. We're, so hopefully it comes back up, so we've held on. But, but we've experienced that firsthand. It's not been fun. It's not been pretty. I remember when I, I drove home, I, I was just sitting there, the, you know, Lord, you give and Lord, you take away. Blessed be your name. I mean, that just over and over in my heart, that was it. I had a peace. Even in the midst of that, I had a peace. God, I am not a cash guy. That's not what I'm about. I'm a Christ guy. I'm a Christ follower, not a cash follower. The market's down. I don't want it to be down. It'd be a lot easier if it wasn't down. That you've given and you can take it away and you're still to be blessed. If it's not, if you if you spend it, it's not for your proof. The second thing that happens is this: you break the trust of your spouse. You break the trust of your spouse, and you will not get that back easily or quickly. Trust that's broken, it's easy to break trust. Look at our political process, look at the advertisements, listen to the debates, and watch it. And there is reasons to distrust all the candidates right now. There's reasons to distrust them. Earning trust back is really, really, really hard. You have to ask yourself in the political process, where, <laughs> what earns my trust of a candidate? In the economic area, a CEO of a company, a lending agency, what earns my trust now in a company, in our government? But the painful one is, how can I earn my wife's trust back once I've lost it in the area of finances, integrity, those types of things? Guys, guard it, protect it. Once it's gone, it will be very hard to get back, and it will be painful to get back. And I'm, I'm sharing that as, as some of you i have shared my story last year and the year before that. Um, I, brought, I brought an issue of pornography into my marriage, and I broke my trust in my marriage with that. And it brought a situation into my marriage that ended up being a very, a very hard struggle um, that's an ongoing struggle. You know, it's not a one-and-done deal. It's a daily deal. But my wife, I've had to earn her trust back. I hurt her. If you haven't seen the movie Fireproof, there's a scene that deals with that. Unbelievably powerful scene. If you haven't seen the movie, single or married, I'd say go and watch it. I said that last week. I'll say it again. Want to move on to number three? I've already mentioned this. Limit death, uh, death, limit death because it's very bad for you. Um, and also, see uh, subpoint one of that is limit debt. Um, again, this is the one thing I really got from my dad, and I feel very, very, very blessed by him. The scriptural principle here is that the borrower becomes the lender's slave. <clears throat> there are three kinds of debt that uh, Robert Lewis mentions in here. He calls it the good, the questionable, and the ugly. And I would agree with him on the good. Uh, the good, he says, is the home. And <clears throat> I'll put a little asterisk by this. The home is good if and only if, if and only if you have wisely evaluated the viability of actually being able to pay that mortgage during good times and bad times. When my wife and I looked for our first house, she was pregnant. Uh, the market was was pretty competitive at the time. It was a seller's market. It wasn't a buyer's market like today is. Uh, the interest rates were not as low as they are right now. They were high. It was a costly deal. We got outbid for uh, nine months maybe or ten months. We got outbid because we had a budget. And I knew if, if we buy a house for more than this amount of money on my salary. Now, we were both working. We were both working. But from the very day we got married, we didn't live off her salary. We lived off my salary. Her salary was to save, to save for long-term things and stuff like that. We lived off my salary. And if you're not married, I, I, I urge you, man, that will be the biggest blessing. You won't know it, but as soon as you start having kids, you're going to be in a sweet position, and you're going to eliminate one of the biggest sources of stress that you would have, and that is a wife that maybe wanted to stay home but can't. Research shows you that most women don't mind working at all. They really don't mind working unless they have to work, and they can grow to resent working at that point. 
A lot of women want to work, sort of the Proverbs 31 idea that, that they, they've chosen to work, to be a blessing to the family, but if they had to, it changes the feel of it. It feels like they're shackled up, and they're like, that's not what I signed up for. Because believe me, they give far more to our children than we do. It, it is ruthless on their body, physically, emotionally. Um, for nine months, they carry the child. And so just, just be aware of that, that, that in that, buying a home that will allow you to have the lifestyle you desire to have. Who cares what I think about your home? And who cares about what your coworker thinks about your home? You're not married to them. They're not going to be at the end of your life with you. Your wife prayerfully will be there with you. Do right by her. Don't do right by everybody else around you and society around you and, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses down the street. If you do that, I'm telling you, you're going to set yourself up for a very frustrating financial situation. Um, number, uh, number two area, questionable loan, car loan. Uh, I'm going to go on the record to say I think that's a bad loan 99% of the time. I am a pay cash for the car, buy a used car, negotiate like a fiend, and come in with what you're willing to pay, and you don't pay a penny more than that. And I have, I'm telling you, we got a 2004 Honda Odyssey. We bought it. It was two years old. We had our fourth kid. We just had our third, and, you know, we, we couldn't all squeeze into the Civic anymore type of deal. And... And we got it for 60% of what it cost originally. It only had 24,000 miles. It still had 24,000 miles of bumper-to-bumper warranty on it. And it, had a, it still had, it had a factory-certified vehicle. I mean, it had all the way to, whatever, 105,000, 107,000 powertrain warranty on it. We haven't been disappointed at all. I could turn around right now even and, and sell it for close to what we bought it for because we really haven't piled tons of miles on it. But it took us a long time to find that van. So instant gratification. We, you, if you're going to gratify quickly, you'll never be able to negotiate hard on vehicles and things like that. But the problem is I've got friends that bought cars, and they got this thing called a balloon payment. And their car is worth like nothing. It was like a, a, a Volkswagen Passat, nice car. It's a car I wanted back in 2000, and uh, we couldn't get the price we wanted. So we settled on a, you know, a $18,000 or $19,000 Honda Accord. Well, great, but we didn't have a balloon payment coming on that thing. So we were, we were done. We walked out, and we were done. They, this guy wasn't done at all, and then he had a $7,000 payment he was having to pay at the end of this car, and he couldn't do it. So he had to sell the car, but guess what? It wasn't worth $7,000 when he sold it. He was upside. You don't want to be upside down in a vehicle. That is, that is bad, ugly debt, in my opinion. Uh, student loans, absolutely uh, a good thing if used well. Uh, let me tell you a little bit what I mean by that. Rice and beans. <laughs> Getting lean and mean when you're in school, living on a loan, taking out a loan, then I would say the loan is okay. But if you don't cut back on your spending and you take a loan and you live sort of this everything's cool, everything's fine, I'm just going through, and I really don't have any expenses, you're accumulating debt. You could either be accumulating less debt or more debt, depending on how ruthless you are on your budget. When you get out, you're going to be shackled to that debt, I promise you. They say you'll pay it off in 10 years, you know. Well, you figure out, hey, it's time to go home. No, um, that's 10 minutes till I need to be done. Um, but if you, uh, it's brutal, man, okay, the ugly, okay. But anyhow, on that debt, please be ruthless on it, because... If you're not, I had a friend in med school, and he lived a pretty cable TV, great cell phone, ringtones, lattes every day, med school, you know, nice clothes, nice car, all this, and he used his loan to finance that type of lifestyle. And he got out with a massive six-figure loan, and he decided after he got into medicine, he really didn't enjoy it too much. But you know what? There's not another job you can do other than being a lawyer probably that's going to allow you to pay that loan off. And you can't just take a medical degree and become a lawyer with that because you're going to have to incur another six-figure debt to get the law degree. And so I'm just telling you, be wise as a student if you're, if you're going into the student loan idea to do that. Uh, home equity loans. I would say the only time that this would be a good thing is if you had credit card debt or a high-interest debt, you could consolidate that, take a home equity loan out at a low interest rate, pay off all the credit card lenders, cut your cards up, and you're okay. 
if it's to gratify, well, we're going to increase the value of our home by $20,000 by putting $20,000 into our home, I'm telling you, you're probably rolling the dice in an area that you don't want to roll the dice. And home equity loan, if you took the acronym H-E-L, it could be hell for you financially if you do that and the value of your home doesn't go up $20,000. We had friends that invested tons of money into their home. They got upside down like crazy in the home. And when they sold it, they sold it at a two or $300,000 loss. Okay? We don't know what the markets are going to do. The prudent thing to do is to say home equity loans are good if and only if they set you free from really high interest rate loans. And the ugly is pretty obvious, credit cards. Um, credit cards, <laughs> you just got to be very, very careful with them. A lot of you probably use them like I do. I do use credit cards, and that is you, you buy something for convenience, you pay it off immediately. Uh, research has been shown by uh, Larry Burkett, and I think that the numbers have been adjusted over the last 20 years, but typically people spend 10 to 15% more money when they use a credit card as their primary purchasing tool. Um, some of you that are more up on that, you could probably correct me, but, but uh, the guy I spoke with last night, he agreed with that, the financial planner, and, and that's been true for me. Because I don't like to open up my wallet pull out cash for stuff, especially if it's an expensive deal, like an iPod. I'd rather buy that on a credit card than with cash because it doesn't seem as painful, right? And so, so that is the, uh, the, the type of debt that we have. Um, couples, here we go. A winning formula for managing money at your home. Uh, the first thing about this budget is, hey, whoever is the numbers person better manage this, better keep tabs on this. And to start... You know, I, I would just say being able to talk about this and asking whoever that is, hey, take this, run with this, control this. So I'm going to put the formula up here in a minute. I think it's written down for you. If I can explain it, just know this. My financial IQ is below five. So if I can explain it to you, that means it's simple and it's doable and it's workable and it's been used by many, many, many people. It's not the only way to do it, but I will propose that this is a, a great thing. Hopefully what you can do is until it becomes part of your DNA financially, you know, type it out, print it up, put it on your, put it on your computer monitor or put it in your checkbook or put it in your wallet to remind yourself of these. It's a great way to memorize scripture. It's also a great way to be reminded of this formula. Uh, the first thing, MTH, very complicated. Monthly take-home income, right? It's pretty simple stuff. Um, G is the money we give away. This is first. You bring home the money. Government's already taken their dibs on it. You might notice that. Some of you might notice that you pay taxes, right? Okay, G is the money that we give away. It's first because throughout the Bible, there's an overarching principle. And that principle is this, that it's impossible to please God without what? Faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. In giving, we express our faith. Giving or tithing is a posture of faith toward God. It's saying, God, I trust you that I'll give you the first things of my life, not the leftovers. I used to tithe off my leftovers. Now I tithe on the front side, and we sort of do a quarterly tithe. That's what we do. We just sort of go forward. Well, what I'm saying to God is I trust that for the next quarter, you are going to meet the needs of my family and I give this on the front side. It's a lump sum, and it hurts when I, when I do it. You know, I feel it when I do it because if it was weekly, it wouldn't be as painful for me. But by making it quarterly, I act, it's, a, it's a big enough thing that I feel that. And I'm like, wow. And I know what that money could go and buy, and, and so I feel it. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to feel a little bit when we give. And I don't do it grudgingly because God loves a cheerful what? Giver. My dad has always tithed. I saw him every Sunday tithe. He still tithes. When he lost all of his money in 1990 on a very bad investment, which changed the orbit of my life, that's another story for another day. But when he lost everything, I still saw him get up on Sunday morning and write a check and put it in the offering plate. And he still does. And he had every reason to panic and every reason to feel sorry for himself and every reason not to do that. He did it because he's a man of faith, and I have been blessed by that. The money we give away. There's a verse that he who is generous will be blessed. That's Proverbs 22, 9. I believe that Scripture shows it, and, and studies will reveal it, that the happiest people, the most contented people in our society, are the people that give their time and their money to a cause greater than themselves. 
they are typically the people that would be measured, quote, as happy, contented people. Now, are they happy and contented because they do it, or are they, you know, or are they happy and because they are happy, they like to give and help other people? You know, there's not a cause and effect that I can identify. Um, number one, we need to regularly give some of our money away. Number two, the Christian honors God for blessing him by giving a regular tithe. Scripturally, that meant a tenth. I'm not a fundamental legalist on this, but I, I look at a tenth as a starting point. Um, my goal, and I think the goal of, of every Christian man and every Christian business leader, should be that through time to increase that percentage, that instead of increasing our lifestyle, that we keep a simple lifestyle, but that we increase our giving. I uh, learned that from Truett Cathy. Uh, I got to meet him, and I got to hang out with some of the people that he works with, and that is part of his corporate you know, DNA is to increase giving, that he as a man has chosen and striven. Uh, is that a word, <laughs> striven? That's great. Methinketh it is. Okay. But uh, he strives to increase from 10% to 11 to 12 The only way to do that is to control your spending. It's not to earn more money. It's to control your spending and to faith God enough in that area. Uh, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, Proverbs 3, 9. Uh, number three, for every man, Christian or not, giving, and, and this, this is really, really cool. Uh, one of my favorite guys, he passed away in 2005. His name was Peter Drucker. Uh, he was one of the only guys that had lived on Wall Street during the blackest days of Wall Street, although if he would have been alive today, he could have said, hey, I've bookended this entire deal, and let me tell you what's up. Um, he was incredibly wise. He was a good, strong believer, a man of great faith and courage, and, and for him, he said that character is a character builder that counteracts corrupting greed. And uh, there's a picture of Mr. Dr- of Mr. Drucker, and here's, here's what he said. He said that history shows prosperity has never been good for humanity. He said that prosperity has never been good for humanity. Now, this guy made lots of money. This guy wrote on our economic system. He wrote on finances he coined the term, you know, that sort of the, the knowledge or the information economy, you know, 30-plus years before we even had that. He was there writing about it. Um, just go to the library if you haven't read any of his stuff. It's, it's all really, really, really good. But you think about the crisis that we're in in our country today and the quest for prosperity wrapped up in greed. I think Drucker would say, dude, yes. Of course, Warren Buffett pulled out of a lot of what everyone else stayed in back in 2000 with some of the junk bonds that were being sold and traded back and forth in debts because he he called it a weapon of mass destruction economically. I mean, some of the people we need to listen to that are more advanced than we are economically. Okay, Uh, for every man, Christian not giving is a character builder that counteracts corrupting greed. Um, And 1 Timothy 6, 9, I think we can all say amen to this. It is the love of money, but those who want to get rich fall into many foolish and harmful desires. Why do they fall into these desires? It's for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Why is it? It's because it dehumanizes people. It objectifies people. People become an end to, become a means to our end, and ultimately it destroys relationships. Uh, every man, Christian or not, should be giving. It connects us to helping others, which is a major ingredient to personal happiness. I would change the word from happiness to contentment, definitely. And uh, if you think about it, Christ said it is more blessed to do what? To give than to receive. That came from the Nazareth, yeah, the man himself. So, And then it connects us to a greater purpose. Everybody get that? It's uh, helping others and then greater purpose. Moving on, S. It's what we pay ourselves for saving for the future. Uh, you can do that electronically today. It's very nice. I would say save something from every paycheck, and a good goal is 10%. Now, if you have a company that has a matching deal, it's icing on the cake. But if you're saving 10%, and right now if you're young, you're saying that's a whole lot of money. I'm like, well, sit down with a financial planner, especially if you've just gotten married or something, and look at retirement, look at education costs, look at all those things, and you'll realize that it's really you're either going to pay now or you're going to be impossible because there's not a loan you can take out for retirement. I mean, there's really not. 
Um, there are loans available for student loans. And so my wife and I were way behind just due to the jobs I've had. There's never been any retirement for any of them, and I didn't make a whole lot of money. Our church really treats ministers well where we actually do have a 403B, which is similar to a 401K. And so we've really been trying to, to, to go a little bit crazy on this thing and, you know, put as much as we can into it because we're way behind on the retirement savings. I told you my dad taught me a lot about debt-free living, but very little about investment. And, uh, and so, you know, we're, we're behind and we're very aware of that. One-twelfth uh, IE is what we pay ourselves for our irregular expenses that come due throughout the years. Basically, look at the quarterly car insurance, Christmas expenses, school tuition, repairs, blah, 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 blah. Look at all of that stuff, add it into one big lump sum and divide it by 12. And open up, open up a freedom account. And in that freedom account, put that amount of money every month into it. And here's why. Nothing's any worse. I have a friend he was always on the brink, always on the precipice of financial bankruptcy. I mean, he was hand to mouth all the time. And every time he started to get ahead, yeah, we're doing all right now, Eric. Everything's fine. You know, his quarterly car insurance comes in. Oh, you know, I forgot about that. And then he's back in the same hole he was in. The only way, and I mean that, the only way to safeguard, and you also need to take your automotive expenses into this. If you've got two cars and you've got an SUV, well, you know your tire's on the SUV, Four of them are going to run you like $600, $800 maybe. I don't, you know, it's like it depends on how nice the tires are, but we just put two on our minivan and it set me back 350 bucks. And we got sort of the cheaper tires. You know, we didn't go for the $150 tire because I'm not driving 95 on a, a skid pad, although I want to in that minivan. That would be so exciting. Yeah. It's got more pickup than my Civic, but anyway, that's another story. Um, but open up a freedom account so that you can be free of those expenses when they do come flying through there. Um, number three, CA, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Carefree's monthly allowance. We pay out to bless and to boundary our mate or ourselves. And what that means is whoever the person is that loves to spend the money but has no boundaries with the money, hey, bless them. Sit down and have a conversation and find out. Look at your budget. How much money could they spend without you needing to know it? And when they're out, they're out for the month. So they want to buy two new dresses or a new purse, or if you want to go buy some CDs and a handgun and listen to music while you go to a shooting range, whatever you want to do, whatever floats your boat, you know, that's, that's great. No one's stressed out. No one's having to fight over it. There's no conflict. So my wife doesn't want to balance a checkbook. Absolutely fine. Well, honey, any overdraft fees come out of your next month's allowance. Well, then she's probably not going to be overdrafting very often. She'll learn to take care of that money, right? And so the, the bottom line is this is a way of actually blessing and giving a healthy boundary there. RMB are the regular monthly bills we pay. That's about as straight up as it can come. Very, very simple stuff, very, very straightforward stuff. And that leaves us with that magic number. Who wants to guess what DM is? And it's not Dungeon Master if you were a geek in middle school and played Dungeons and Dragons. What? No, but you could use it for that. Yes, discretionary money. Somebody has been reading my email. Uh, DM is the discretionary money we have left for ourselves as a couple. It's the leftovers. That's why it's an equal sign. Now, here's the reality check for you. You sit down, you do this equation, and if this number is negative, you got, here's what you got to do. You got three options. If you don't, it doesn't matter if it's negative or not. If you don't like the number, there are three logical options you have. Option number one, work really hard where you are and try to earn more money, okay? Option number two, get a different job that pays more money. Option number three, go back to the rest of it and learn how to control your spending. Okay, those are your options. I don't know of another option out there. Well, you, oh, number four, play the lotto. Okay, there. That's four. Great. Or wait for the government bailout, because certainly they'll bail all of us out because they care for us, the human people. Okay. Um, anyhow, I'm not bitter about that. No, not at all. Okay. Um, anyhow, oh my gosh. Couples need to decide in their budget which areas should get the discretionary money and how much. Hey, vacation coming up this year. Ten-year anniversary. Uh, a new car. You need to save up for a new car. Um, kids, you know, books, private school education, those types of things that maybe your kids aren't old enough yet, but you could go ahead and start saving up for that stuff now, right? 
So that's how you end up paying cash for a vehicle is you actually look at right now today, hey, I've got a car and it's two years old. Well, hey, you've got five years probably, you know, you probably got five years to save money to get a replacement car. And along the way, you may have some breakdowns and some things. So buying a reliable vehicle is good. Buying an economical vehicle that's easy to insure and it uses less gas is a good thing. Biggest isn't always best, although Texas thinks it is. When I drive my Civic, I feel like a shrimp. But, you know, I'm not the biggest, tallest, strongest guy in the world either, so maybe my car reflects my personality. Who knows? Uh, number two, young married couples or couples who lack the discipline, they really should go into a cash envelope system with this, with this whole idea of discretionary money. The reason why is when you go and you say, hey, we're going to go on a date night tonight, and you go and you reach in and you find $10, you realize you're not going to taste of Texas, you're going to Taco Bell. Because you know you got $10 of discretionary money left, right? Um, I had lunch with a guy yesterday. He operates on the cash deal, and it's, it's causing me to think about, because I do credit card on literally everything because it pays me to use it. Um, right, that doesn't work well either sometimes. So number three, the number conscious personality should definitely watch over the money and stay in touch with it. So let me, uh, let me answer two areas. What about credit cards? Real, real quickly, no charging unless both parties agree and relinquish the cards you can't control. You know, if you've listened to Dave Ramsey for very long, you maybe have already burned your card or cut your card up, okay? But those are two things just to keep in mind. They are ugly debt. Credit cards will be ugly debt. And, uh, and then what about God? Well, the bottom line is it's absolutely fantastic to discover that there is a God called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord God provider, that it is not fully and squarely on your shoulders to provide the resources for your family. You have the responsibility. God will be the provider. And in this equation, what we don't factor in is God. We do not factor that in. I'm not up here with a health, wealth, prosperity gospel at all. But what I'm here to say is that God deeply cares for us. The scripture says that he's never seen the righteous beg for bread. He's never seen the righteous beg for bread. Now, does that mean the righteous should go out and buy a Ferrari and then put themselves in a situation where they maybe have to beg for bread? Absolutely not. But to keep God at the front and the foremost of our finances, to understand that how we steward will free us up to be able to be givers, that how we give will influence our posture, will either be a faith posture or a consuming posture. We'll either break the hold of greed in our lives, or we won't break the hold of greed in our lives. But the spiritual discipline of giving has been given to us by God to set us free so that we could be content with where we are. Lastly, four musts for the married man. Number one is accept responsibility for sound financial practices. It reduces stress and conflict. It draws your wife's respect and admiration. It brings security to your wife, a top female need, and freedom to your marriage. Those three things are huge. If you want to live well with money, then you're going to have to use the paradox principle. That's number four. It requires the paradox principle. Die a little to yourself so that you can live a little bit more. We're just going to be filling the blanks in from here. And there are in the back of the book also. Um, then B, make sure you have provided for the future of your family. Uh, a will, um, real quickly on the will. Thy will be done is a plan giving seminar if you're a single adult. Sunday, November 2nd from 12 to 2 with a free lunch provided. We'll be here and there'll be everything from a will to, to a medical, you know, documents, stuff like that. We'll be here. If you're a married man or lady, uh, I guess the man here today, uh, Friday, November the 7th from 6.30 to 8.30 will be dinner. Child care, you have to make reservations. It's online at houstonsfirst.org. Those are the topics. Lance Bowman, one of our, our young marrieds, is going to be doing that. Um, I would highly recommend that. It's going to be below market value as far as to get a will. Um, you'd be able to do that, a simple will for, I believe, $100 or something like that. You won't leave the seminar with it, but you'll leave with a list of several people that have already had their members from our church that have pre-negotiated that rate. And they'll teach you all you need to know in the seminar. And you will, live, you will leave with all the medical documents that you would need, like a living will, which most, I don't have that right now. 
And if something were to happen to me today, there's nothing stating what my desire would be, whether or not to be hooked up on a machine for 20 years or not and bankrupt my wife and the kids. Um, if you have any desire to let your will be made known, those are two seminars you ought to go to. Number two, insurance. Please get, you know, life insurance. And uh, if you're able to afford it, long-term disability is important to protect the earning power because we don't know what happens. Um, so those are some of the things. And lastly, provide a safe place for keeping all your important financial information. Uh, hopefully a fireproof, waterproof uh, lockbox or a safe deposit box. Inside, put everything in that container at home. Um, number two, put a love letter inside. I'm going to skip over uh, something that we're going to do next year called Letters from Dad. But a love letter, amazing. What if you're, just imagine if, if you were to die, you provided for your wife, but have you provided emotionally for her? Have you allowed closure to happen? Have you honored her? Having a letter that's written to her that when she opens up the box where she knows this is, this is who the financial planner is. This is his contact information. This is where the money is. This is the copy of the will. These are all the things that are in place. She doesn't have to freak out, stress out about. On top of all of it is a letter that says how much you love her, how special she is to you. There's a sample letter written back there. If you haven't done that, man, write it. You do not know when it is your last day. I speak for Chris Brown and Cindy Brown, um, one of our married couples, that very tragic loss of life. Uh, this Sunday morning, and yet, you know, they were blessed with the cancer, so they knew that it was coming soon, and they were able to have that closure, but if it would have been a car wreck, there would have been no final words spoken between the two of them. Um, don't worry about that. And then keep growing in your financial understanding. Read good books, seek wise counsel, and uh, we have Financial Peace University groups all over our church. If you're interested, go on the web, click on Milestones, and look at when the next one begins. If you're in a Bible study class, suggest to the teacher that, hey, maybe we can get a small group that does Financial Peace University together. Um, I believe we have driver's licenses for kids. We need FPU licenses for people in our society so that we don't do boneheaded things like buy giant mortgages and then default on them. Um, oh, did that come out again? Yeah, I, I apologize. I run late. I think that's my, my theme. I'm an hour every time. So, hey, let's, uh, let's pray, and then y'all get to your – actually, y'all just get to your tables, and y'all pray at your tables when you're done. And, uh, yeah, Godspeed. Thank y'all.